Let's open in prayer. Yahweh, we just thank you for another week. Another week of you involved in our lives and blessing us and take take care of us and guiding us. And um, once again, we always pray, always pray for you to calm our hearts, calm our minds, um, allow us to be open to your word, open to the Holy Spirit. Give me the words to say. Give me the truths that need to be communicated. And I pray that you would encourage people where they need to be encouraged. You would convict where they need to be convicted. And you would just lift us up and guide us towards you into an ever deeper desire for you and love for you that would ultimately turn into a commitment and a perseverance. I pray that as we start tonight into Hebrews and look at the people of the past, that we would see them for who they are, we would be inspired for them, with by them, and that they would be an encouragement to us. That if this faith was capable in the First Testament, then it's definitely capable, we are definitely capable of it, with the Holy Spirit and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Hebrews 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Hebrews 11 is one of those very difficult chapters for me. Because my love of the First Testament is going to make me want to just go back and teach every single thing that it's talking about. Um, but I can't do that because it's too much history. We'll try to just keep these things simple, but as well as to help you understand. Hopefully, we have enough of an understanding the First Testament from Sunday school class that we won't be completely lost when we talk about Abraham, Moses, and that kind of stuff. But I will do my best to summarize and not just tell you the story completely. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by it the people of old received God's commendation. By faith we understand that the words were set in order at God's command. The world, sorry were set in order at God's command. So the visible has its origin in the invisible. By faith, Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain. Through his faith, he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offerings. And through his faith, he still speaks, though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death. And he was not to be found because God took him up. For before his removal, he had been commended as having pleased God. Now without faith, it is impossible to please him. For the one who approaches God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about the things not yet seen, with reverent regard, constructed an ark for the deliverance of his family. Through faith, he commended, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The author now moves from the need to persevere. So here's two concepts he introduces in chapter 10. He introduces the need to have faith and to persevere. But he starts with basically saying you need to persevere in the faith and then you need to have faith. He then deals with those in reverse order. So he exhorts you to perseverance and faith. In chapter 11, he then talks about what faith is. And then in chapter 12, he's going to talk about what it means to persevere. 
So that's what he's done. Now that we've moved from the Jesus is better than, we've now moved into the exhortation to actually place your faith in him and then to persevere. And that's what he's going to unpack here. So almost all of these figures are commended for their perseverance. Their faith is what makes them stand out, but their faith is visible through their perseverance. And that's the point of chapter 11. They're commended for their faith, but their faith is made visible through their perseverance. Where Paul is contrasting faith with works, usually in his writings, that works are not necessary for faith, this author is going to emphasize that true faith should produce works. But for him, it's not in the action kind of works that we're typically used uh, for when James talks about that, but it's more of the long haul. So Paul is mostly emphasizing that works do not save you. Only grace does. James comes along and says, yeah, but if you have faith, you're going to have works. You're going to have fruit. That's just a natural outcome. Where the author of Hebrews is going to say the same thing, but for him, he's not necessarily looking at specific works of behavior like James is, but he's looking at the ability to stay committed to God for a long haul. That's the demonstration of faith for the author of Hebrews, is that long-haul commitment. The other thing that's interesting is that not only is he going to list key figures, but he's also going to list key historical events in salvation history. These figures are very important, but the events that they represent are also important as well. Now, this is a little bit of my pet peeve. You must understand that when I was growing up, I was taught that this was the hall of faith, the great men of faith, and that we should look to them as an example. You must understand that is none at all the point that Hebrews is making. Okay? And it's interesting that repetition is the hallmark of Jewish literature. If you really want to... Uh, God usually makes his point through repetition. So what is it that gets repeated over and over and over again in this chapter? By faith. That's the main point. The main idea here is by faith, through the means of faith, the instrument of faith, the tool of faith. This is how things get accomplished. You must understand that God is not lifting these people up as great objects. If he was, that would completely refute everything he's been doing in the first ten chapters. Everything I've been in the first ten chapters is about how great Christ is. That Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. And then all of a sudden he turns to chapter 11 and talks about how amazing these people are. That's not the point. The point is by faith. The other thing is we'll briefly talk about is some of these guys are scumbags. Okay? When you, I know David has been lifted up as this great man of faith, but he was. But if you look at his obedience track record, it's not good. Okay, he's not really a great man of doing a lot of godly things. What marked him as an incredible man of faith was not that he did amazing things, but that he repented so amazingly and so quickly all the time. If you go back and listen, read, really, 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 truly read the Gideon story, he's not that great of a guy. Okay, the first thing he says, why me? Where have you been, God? You don't care about us. And God finally convinces him to do something, and he does it at night with the help of other people. He was supposed to defeat the army all by himself. And he went out and got people's help. And then he hid behind his father for a defense of why he did when he tore down the altar. 
And then when he finally when it got the courage to go up, he, the Holy Spirit comes on in power and he calls up an army, which is totally a, an insult to God. Oh, I got the Holy Spirit, but I need an army too. And then he questions God. And not only does he question God with the fleece, he actually says, God, don't be angry at me, but I'm going to question you again. And then he finally goes into battle. When he goes into battle, he goes, for God and for me. And then when he finally goes into battle and gets victory, he then starts skinning his own people alive and burying them alive because they didn't give him bread and water. And then he builds an idol and he wears the idol and makes everybody bow down and worship him. And that's how the story ends. Okay, so what's so amazing about Gideon? Samson, I mean, come on, that guy was ruled by his lust and his anger. He was, an over, he was, a, he was a 40-year-old man with a, the, the life of a little kid in him. There's a reason why kids start off really small, so they don't kill people when they throw tantrums. <laughs> Gideon threw tantrums and people died. Okay, He was not that great. And so these people are mentioned here. Abraham threatened the promises of God. Like, when the minute he starts following God, he goes off and he almost gives his wife over to the Pharaoh. And if he would have slept through him, then Sarah's child would have been from Pharaoh and that would have totally invalidated the promises of God of a child. And then he sleeps with Hagar and has multiple wives. He marries again. He then threat, he lies again a second time. He then like, and he just keeps doing these things. The point is not that these people were amazing people. The point is that they were everyday normal people who were sinners like us. But they had faith in God. And God did amazing things with them. The true hero, chapter 11, is Christ. And the point is, what can faith do if you put it in the right object? If you've really come to understand how greater Christ is to everything, then if this is what these people were able to do when they placed their faith in God, then you're going to be able to do amazing things when you place in God. And even though you struggle with your sins and your addictions and your trials and your faults, if you have faith that God will repent, that will, He will forgive you when you repent, if you have faith to keep pursuing Him no matter how much you screw up, if you have faith to continually be transformed by the Holy Spirit, to trust in Him, then God can do amazing things. And the point of chapter 11 is not how great these people are. The point is that because they realized that God was the only true worthy object of their faith, God was able to do amazing things in them by faith. That's the point. And therefore, we do not lift them up as a great cloud of witnesses to emulate. We emulate their faith the example they set, not how great they are. We emulate the, the, and I know this is an argument of semantics, but we're not looking to them as our hero. We're looking to them as a great story of how we too can do something like that through faith. Does that make sense? When we think of idols and heroes, we think, oh, I really love this basketball player, or I really love this actor, or I really love this, and we, we idolize them, we make them as a hero. And everything they do, we want to do, and that kind of stuff, especially as young kids. That's not the point here. It's not an American hero kind of a thing that the Bible's lifting up. It's a look at this example where they actually demonstrated some faith in God. See what they did right and how they placed their faith in God and know that God can do the same thing in you if God is true, your hero. The whole point of the Bible is that God's your hero, not these people. 
These people are great examples and stories of getting it right sometimes here and there. And we can use this as a great encouragement for what it means. But notice that the whole point was not to get to know them better. The point was to know when they actually placed their faith in God, they knew God better, and God revealed Himself in amazing ways. And their faith at that moment in God revealed to us and them something amazing about God. And so now I go to them and I say, well, they did this and God rewarded them. So then if I have faith in God, He'll reward me too. That's the point of chapter 11. Does that make sense? They're not heroes. They're examples of what faith can do when it's in the right object, placed in the right object. Verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. Now this is my other little pet peeve when it comes to Hebrews 11. Faith is not blind. I hate that definition. Faith is not blind. If you want blind faith, then why are you a Christian? Just turn the lights off and grab the nearest God. That's blind faith. Why in the world have you become a Christian? If faith is just blind, then blindness implies that you're just randomly reaching out there for something and you just happen to grab a hold of Christianity. And so let's just blindly place our faith in this religion. That is not what this verse is saying. This verse is not saying that faith is blind. Faith is, this verse is saying faith is being sure, which is conviction based on evidence of things that we do not see. Things that we do not see is different than me being completely blind and randomly grabbing a hold of things. Okay, and so this is very important. Why would God spend 66 of the books of the Bible revealing himself if faith is just blind? Why would he try to make such an argument for 10 chapters that Christ is better if faith is just blind? Why would Jesus say, I do miracles to validate what I'm saying if faith is just blind? Why would Jesus say, no one, no one goes into battle without first investigating their enemy and seeing if they're actually able to defeat them? And if they find out that they can't defeat them, they don't go into battle. Nobody builds a tower without first blueprinting it, counting the costs and figuring out whether they can, because if it's not going to stand, they're not going to build a tower. And then he turns on and he says, don't you dare follow me, because your emotions are being stroked right now. You follow me because you've investigated what I've said and what I've done, and they've come out to be proven reliable, and then you place your faith in me. And this is what he says over and over again. The Bible is always bringing reason and evidence together with faith. Now, there's a weakness. We can either go into total faith that we just have faith in everything. I'm going to have faith that he'll heal you. I have faith that you'll find your missing sock. Okay, I actually had someone who was very seriously said that to me once. Okay, God spoke to them that they were going to find my missing sock, and I never found it. Um, so the reality is, or you can go too extreme where everything has to be so perfectly reasoned and proven to you without any shadow of a doubt that you're not going to believe it unless it's 100% evidence. And you're never going to get that. There's this reality where I have enough evidence. Like, I mean, I could spend an entire year on the evidence for the Bible. Right? There are only 27 religious books in the entire world. 
And the Bible is the only one that's rooted in history, dates, names, events. And the only one that has so much evidence supporting it, both internally and externally, and pro-Christians and anti-Christians all validating things. And da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You go to all the other books of the Bible, all the other books of faith, they have no evidence, like literally no evidence supporting them. There's so much evidence for Christianity, but it will never, ever completely prove who God is and what He's capable of. And the end, I do have to step out on faith. And that's the tension. The tension is that I do have reasoned evidence, but at the same time, I do have faith and experience. And that's so important. That's, that's the struggle. Because ultimately, I can't prove anything to you. I can't prove to you that we're all sitting in this room. My students hate this part, but... You can't prove to me that we're sitting in this room right now. Because the only thing you have is your five senses. And your five senses have convinced you that your dreams are real sometimes. And so there's, there's ultimately, without the fact that we're here is faith. The atheist who has all this evidence for things has to ultimately have faith that nature is all there is. Everybody has to have faith. No matter how faithful your spouse has been to you, you still have faith that they'll continue to be faithful. There's no guarantee. And so, but it's based on evidence. It's based on evidence. And so that's the important thing to understand is that when we come to this passage, the author is very clearly stating that it's both evidence and faith. So now faith is being sure of what we hope for. I gave you that definition of hope earlier, that hope is desire plus expectancy. I can expect something to happen because God has proven himself trustworthy. And that's the evidence. I have book after book after testimony after testimony of people in the Bible, testimonies in the church, testimonies from friends and family, personal testimonies, where I have reason through evidence that God, both logically and experientially, is trustworthy. And because that evidence has all proven itself valid, now I place my faith that all the promises that haven't come yet will actually come. And I can expect it because of his reputation. That's a good way of looking at it. Because he says, here's what we, we can be sure. We're convinced. Because we have evidence. We have a reputation from God that's proven itself through the eons, that the evidence is solid. He is real. Then he goes on to the faith part of things that are not seen. And that's where ultimately, can I prove to you totally that God does exist? No. Can I prove to you that the second coming of Jesus Christ will definitely come? No. And then that's where I step out in the faith. And I have my faith in unseen things because of the things that I have seen. And that's very, very, very important. I have faith in the things that I cannot see because of the things I can see. Yes. Does that make sense? It's very, especially in this day and age. If there's ever, there are, if there are ever two major points in history that this faith and reason have really come slamming head to head, it's during the Roman Empire with Paul, and then now today. Okay? And it's interesting because he wrote the book of Romans, and that will still stand up. Uh, If you really read the Bible, it is full of evidence, especially the Second Testament. 
But at the same time, there are so many things that we have not seen yet. And we're hoping in. And so that's faith. Faith is reason and faith put together. For by it, the people of old receive God's commendation. And that's very important. Because later he's going to go on and make and unpack the point that you cannot please God without faith. And that's the whole point. If we can never, ever, 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 ever obtain perfection by obedience to the law, then how in the world will you ever please our righteous God? And that's where chapter 11 comes in. By faith. By faith. Your spouse will never, ever, ever be the perfect spouse to you. But they please you through devotion and commitment and a desire to repent, a desire to be changing, a desire to be a better Christian and a better husband or wife. Right? And that's a little mini microcosm of what we do with Christ. So if you can never, ever, ever be perfect, then what do you have to offer God? Faith. That's it. And that's the whole point of chapter 11. If he just pretty much took out the law, what do you replace it with? Faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were set in order at God's command, so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. The worlds is just another way of saying the universe, the cosmos. And God did toss all the planets and the stars into their place. And so we have faith that these things were thrown in because we know that they had to come from something. So here's the two realms. The invisible, which we cannot see, and the visible, which is the material realm. We have faith that none of us, none of us, were ever at the beginning of creation. Not even the atheist was at the beginning of creation to know exactly what happened. And so we have faith that God is actually the one who brought everything into existence. Because the things that we can see, the things that are tangible, came out of the invisible, the spiritual realm. God spoke it out of the spiritual realm, and the material came into existence. Now notice that he does not say the material realm is a shadow of, or an inferior copy of the spiritual realm. He does not say it's not good or bad. He says that it just only had its origins and the invisible. Because it has its origins in the visible does not make this material realm inferior or bad. Your children had their origin in you. That does not make them evil or bad. It just means that they came from something else. And here's the kind of cyclical pattern. How can we know and have faith that God brought the material world into existence out of the invisible? Because when we look at the material realm, it gives us evidence for a creator God. That's the point of Romans. That God has woven himself into the creation so that there is evidence in creation in our conscience that there is a God. Because why did you choose Christianity as the origin of creation, not other things? I mean, atheists can make a really good argument for, the big, for evolution. I mean, I, I can, we can all poke holes in it really quick. It's easy. But at the same time, there's some 
some things that you've got to really work hard to prove wrong. Why Christianity? Why God? There was something in creation that convinced you of the invisible. And so it goes both ways. Creation gives you evidence that there is an invisible that you can't see. And therefore, you then have faith that the invisible actually does exist because of God created. Because His fingerprint is all over everything. But in the end, it's still faith because the evidence for God is not overwhelmingly ironclad, solid proof. Does that make sense? And so you just kind of circle. You have faith. So he's going to start with all these invisible things. This is the point. He's going to start with the invisible, the things that we can't see, the things that we can't know without a shadow of a doubt. And then in those, he says he set it in order by his command or his word. You have faith that God merely spoke and everything came into existence. Have you ever seen anybody speak and something come into existence? Yet you have faith that that's how God created the world. You have faith that that's how He created the world. Now there's a little play here too. Because now, in Genesis it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and He spoke things into existence. When we get to John, John says, and the Word was Christ. Colossians says that everything was thrown into place through the word Jesus. All things came into existence through Jesus. And then now we're here, we're being told that God spoke things into existence. After we just got done with a long thing about how Christ is the exact copy and the radiance of God's glory. And so they keep tying you back into the Jesus thing. Then verse 4, By faith Abel offered God a greater sacrifice than Cain, and through his faith he was commended as righteous, because God commended him for his offering, and through his faith he still speaks, though he is dead. Now, remember this story. Cain offers up his grain, and Abel offers up the best of his animals. Nowhere does the text really clearly tell you what makes Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's? It's not that Cain is offering an inferior sacrifice. Like some translations say the best of Abel's animals. And, but really what it says is that Abel offered some of his animals and Cain offered some of his. And then it went on and says and Abel offered even the fattiest portion. Some translations translate that as better but it just says fatty. And so it doesn't clearly remark that. There is some evidence that animal sacrifices were typically in Leviticus seen as a, a trust offering. They were not your works. You don't do anything to raise an animal. And so God required an animal sacrifice to atone for your sins first and then a grain offering because grain is your works. And you weren't allowed to offer a grain offering without an animal sacrifice. And Cain goes straight to the grain offering. And so he's offering a work sacrifice where Abel's offering a faith sacrifice. There's evidence for that. But ultimately, in just Genesis, you have nothing that tells you what makes Abel's sacrifice better except for the fact that God was pleased with his and not Cain. That's it. And the implication is then that Abel had a better heart than Cain. That's the ultimate point that Genesis is making. 
that God was pleased. Because he's going to go on and say, it's impossible to please God without faith. So if God was pleased with Abel and not Cain, then was it really about whether it was grain or animal, that kind of stuff? All those things are important. I'm not saying they're not important, but what it really came down to was Cain had a better heart, or Abel had a better heart. And we couldn't see that, but God could. And so even though they were both sacrificing, Abel had faith, and Cain did not. And then as you keep reading the story, you see why Cain didn't have a better heart. Because when God pursues him, knows it's God that goes and talks to him, not Cain who goes and talks to God, and warns him, be careful. And Cain says, forget it. And then even after Cain sins, it's God who pursues him, not Cain who goes to God. And the first thing Cain says is, this is not fair. Now, if your spouse or your friend said that, as they said, I've come to say I'm sorry and repent, and the first thing they say, but it's not fair what's happening to me. I don't think you would accept that as a legitimate repentance. And that's the first thing he says and all he can handle. I can't handle this. That's not repentance. And so he shows his heart later. But in that moment, what stood them apart was their heart, their faith. And that's how Abel pleased God. And through faith, he was commended as righteous. Even though the text in Genesis never tells you that God declares Abel righteous. What he basically tells you is this. If the Second Testament through Christ has made it very clear that it's impossible to please God without faith, and then Genesis tells you that Abel pleased God, then the implication was that he has faith, therefore he was righteous. Even though Genesis never tells you that. Because the righteous will live by faith. And if he pleased God, then he has faith, therefore he is righteous. And he trusts in the things that he could not see. He trusts in the things he could not see. He didn't know whether God was going to accept his sacrifice. He didn't have a Bible. All he knew was God wanted sacrifice. And he trusted that God would reward him. Now it says that through his faith he was commended as righteous because God commended him for his offering, and through his faith he still speaks us through the dead. Now some people immediately go to chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 10, where it says that Abel's blood was crying out from the ground. That's not the point. Because in that passage, it's Abel is dead, and this passage says that he still speaks. Well, you can't speak when you're dead. Two, it says that Abel is speaking, where there God is saying that Abel's blood is crying out. And the whole point of chapter 4, verse 10, is that Abel's blood is crying out to God for justice. Now, would making allusion for Abel wanting justice for his death have anything to do with a by-faith chapter? It doesn't fit. What fits is this, that even though he's dead, the example of someone who merely just offers up their sacrifice to God by faith still speaks to us throughout all of history. The idea is all these people are dead, But because God has immortalized them in Scripture, their testimony, their faith still can speak to us, even though they're dead. That's the point here, that their testimony speaks to us, even though they're dead. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he did not see death, and he was not to be found because God took him up. For his removal, he has been commended as having pleased God. 
Now, Enoch, remember, chapter 5 is that great chapter because it's the first genealogy that we ever have. And most of us read all these names that we cannot pronounce and we don't know who they are and blah, 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 blah. Chapter 6. Okay? Chapter 6 is the angels and the sons of God. That's the cool stuff. Okay? Noah and all in the ark and they make nice little Sunday school hallway pictures. And so we like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) Um, But you have to realize there's a very, very important lesson being in that genome. There's lots of lessons. And one of the lessons is that over and over and over again it says, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died, and he died, he died, 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 died. And if you look at every, there's nine more genealogies in Genesis, none of them ever mention anybody dying. And all the other genealogies throughout the Bible and the four genealogies of the Gospel, no one is ever said to be dead. Why is it that every genealogy in the Bible never talks about people dying, yet the first one just hits it so hard, like a ringing bell in your ear? And the point is that the serpent said, you will not surely die. And though you could not physically see their death immediately when they ate of the fruit, the first thing that they want to tell you is he died, 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 died. The serpent was wrong, Yahweh was right. And that pattern teaches you something. The pattern, God speaks through patterns. And the pattern teaches you God is right. God is right. And he doesn't need to teach you that anymore because at that point we've got plenty of years of history to remind us that everybody dies. It's going to happen. But the other thing that's interesting is that not only does God use patterns, God also breaks patterns to teach you something. And what breaks the pattern is Enoch was taken up into heaven. So the question is, why him and nobody else? And right before that, it says that Enoch walked with God, and he was translated. That's what the original word is. He was translated. Okay, now, I don't know where he went, but the point is that he did not die. He escaped death because he walked with God. Now, what does it mean to walk with God? You have to have the rest of the Bible for that. Because Abraham's going to be said to walk with God. And yet he sinned a lot. Noah was said to walk with God, yet he got drunk after the flood. Job is said to be blameless and upright, and yet he turned on God and said, you're not just. And he said that for 30-something chapters. John, first John's going to tell you that the only way you can be saved is if you walk with God. And you're like, oh. And John even goes on and says, walking with God means you don't sin. You're like, what? What it means is this. Well, all throughout the Bible, the point is this, that I pursue a life of obedience because I want to please God through my faith. But when I don't obey, I immediately repent. And I repent so quickly, and I confess my sins and bring them out into the light so quickly that nobody can hold anything against me. Because I'm not hiding any skeletons in the closet. And so, what is that? Faith. Because they're definitely not pleasing God through obedience. So walking with God is faith. So why did Enoch escape death? Because of faith. Now that doesn't mean we'll all escape physical death, but we will escape death by faith. And so he escaped death. Notice that all these are kind of escaping death in a certain sense. Abel escaped eternal death. Enoch escaped literal death. Then he goes on and says to Noah, 
Well, then he says in verse 6, Now without faith it is impossible to please God. For the one who approaches God must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. So, how does one please God by faith? What does faith look like? Two things. First, you must believe that God exists. Now you have to realize that this doesn't mean that you believe that God exists in an ontological essence sense. Everybody believes God exists pretty much until the 1700s. The point here is in the context of the Bible. And in the context of Hebrews, when you first learn about God and the origin of the universe, it's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4. through And the idea is that you must believe that God exists as revealed through His prophets and finally through His Son. That's because the only way that we can know who God is, is if He reveals Himself to us. God is completely unknowable. And if we are only left to our own minds and our own works, you will never, ever, ever get to know God. If God hadn't written the Bible, none of us would know who God is. And so the only way we can know God is through His revelation, through the prophets, and ultimately His Son. Therefore, it's not just that you believe that God exists, it's that you believe that He is the sovereign creator of the universe, who is intimately involved in His children's lives, because He has revealed this through His prophets, and today He has spoke finally through His Son. And that's what God exists means in the context of Hebrews. Because he just spent ten chapters giving you that definition for God's existence. So that's the first thing that you must believe to have faith. The second is you must believe that he rewards those who have faith. You must believe that he's such a good and loving God that he will give you what you want when you pray according to the character of Jesus Christ. And if you do not believe that God rewards you, then you do not believe God is good Therefore, how can you have faith in that? And so the first is you must believe that God exists as revealed through His prophets and His Son. And two, that He is a good God that is intimately involved in your life. And then you please God. That's faith. And if you really truly believe those, and you constantly remind you of that, through the stories of the Bible, through the stories of the people in your church, through your own personal stories, if you keep cycling those through, you will operate in faith. I don't know if I mentioned this before, but when we first got married, I, my wife and I have, I know money is the big argument that a lot of couples have, and that's never, I mean, we got our issues, don't believe me. But money has never been an issue that has divided us in any way. Um, but, at the same time, we've never argued about money personally together, but we have struggled to trust God for the bills to be provided many, many, many times. And, I, and the, there's, there's so many times I'm like, there's no way we're going to make it. There's no way we're going to make it. And just year after year after year. And I just kept thinking that. And, there's just, da, 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 da. and then, I, you guys have heard the stories. I mean, things have just happened. I mean, one year our f- air conditioner and our furnace went out in the same year. And we had to pay for a brand new one and, and money just literally came out of the woodwork. Just random anonymous checks in one place. A project that Andrea... She hadn't gotten a freelance project in over a year. And all of a sudden, this freelance project came two days after our air conditioner went out. It was like almost the exact price. Just, and there's story after story after story after story that I could tell you of God just constantly providing for us. 
To the point that now, after 11 years of being married, and God constantly distributing me, I don't ever wonder if God's going to provide for us anymore. He's proven His reputation for so long that I don't ever wonder whether He's going to provide for you. Now, don't, don't get me wrong now, I don't like it. I'm not saying I'm enjoying it. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying like, yay, another opportunity to trust God. <laughs> it's, it's still, I don't like it. I still don't enjoy it. It's still kind of frustrating. I still think that, okay, I've learned the lesson, God. Now can we just move on to not... But I don't stress. I don't doubt. I don't worry like I used to. It's taken 11 years, but... And I'm not saying I'm a spiritual giant because I've got my other areas, but that's the track record. The track record is, I believe that God is going to take care of me because I've seen it. And that's how I please him. And that's the pleasing to him because I finally got it in that area. That's how we please God. By eventually seeing the evidence that he so continually lays out and then we just have faith that he's going to take care of us. That he's going to reward us if we stay true to him. And it has nothing to do, I have not done anything to pay the bills. I work my butt off. And I do everything that I'm supposed to, and it's still not enough. And we don't even have debts. And we don't go and spend extravagantly. And I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm just trying to give God all the glory that I possibly can. I'm not pulling this off on my own. It's God doing it. And I finally have learned the lesson in that area. Now, I'm not saying that something big can't come, and I have to relearn the lesson all over again in that area. I'm just saying right now, things are good. But whenever you pass a class, there's always like the next level for God to bring into your life. So I'm not arrogant either and overconfident. Um, Just right now is good. (laughs) And that's the point he's making here. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen. Now, listen, I'm not going to go unpack this, but there's no evidence that it's never rained ever, ever in the history of mankind at Noah's time. Okay, I don't know. I, I know where that kind of comes from, but it's, there's not really any evidence. When, when Noah is having faith in the things he has not seen, it's not that he's never seen rain before. Because even if you've seen, we've seen rain, but that doesn't mean the world's going to die tomorrow. The things that are unseen is that the world is going to be completely wiped out. That's the main point. That's the unfathomable. That's what you can't really understand. And so he places faith in God that the world is going to be completely covered with water, yet no one has ever seen that before. Now, wouldn't you like to know all the things that God has done in Noah's days and life that got Noah to the point that God can say, the world is going to be completely covered in water? And he's like, okay. Remember, the Bible doesn't tell us everything. It left out a whole life of Noah. And what led him? Nobody wakes up one day and just is that kind of a faith. What was God doing in his life? What kind of suffering did he take him through to help him trust in that? And so by faith, Noah believed that a world could be covered with water because God said it. Then here's what's interesting. By his constructing the ark, he condemned the world around him. Now some people go to First Peter, or Second Peter, um, where it basically says, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, where 
Noah preached to them. You ever wonder why God gave him 120 years before the flood came? Because he is such a patient God that even though everybody is only doing evil all the time, can you imagine living in a world where nobody has a good thought? Let alone, if you don't have a good thought, you can't do anything good either. And yet, despite that, God says, I'll give you 120 years to repent. That's patience. That's patience. We barely give people a week. And Noah preached to them for the 120 years. So God justifies himself in three ways. One, they already deserve to die. Well, actually four. They deserve to die because they're sinners. Two, they really deserve to die because there's nothing good in them left. Three, they deserve to die because he's given them gospel presentation for 120 years. And then four, they deserve, he deserves to punish them because if you don't repent after 120 years, there's something dark in you. And so God justifies himself through those four things. And then it floods. But that's not the point he's talking about. He's not talking about that he condemned them. I doubt that Noah's message was primarily a fire and brimstone one. He condemned them by the fact that he was demonstrating a faith in unseen things and they were shaking their fist in God. And the contrast between them condemned them. The fact that it was possible for a person to still have faith in God, despite that the whole entire world literally were not believers, condemned them even more. When we talk about, but God, it is so hard to be a believer in this day and age. Can you imagine trying to be a believer where every single person in the world is only thinking evil all the time? And by the fact that he was capable of having faith, condemned them. That's what condemned them. And that's what Peter even goes on in 1 Peter and says, you will condemn them by your good works. When you demonstrate faith in God and you stay committed to Him, despite how much they persecuted, that's what will heap coals on top of their head, which is judgment. Your ability to have faith in a world that is almost impossible to have faith is what condemns them. And then what it ultimately will hopefully get them to say, wow, what kind of God do you serve that when I treat you like that, you can still have faith in Him? And that was Noah. And therefore, he became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He inherited the new creation, not through his works, but by his faith. All these people that he mentions are people who had faith in the invisible. And that's the focus here. That's the focus. Notice that Noah also is the only person who had a direct word of God. No one else had God directly speak to them and say, do this and believe. Noah did. And even that was a huge, really? That's the emphasis here. 